Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another episode of RN.FM Radio. We have got yet another great show this evening with two amazing guests uh, tonight. So you might want to settle in for a great story that I'm told um, that they're going to share with us tonight. I'm Kevin Ross from Innovative Nurse here in my studio in Colorado, and my fellow co-host Keith Carlson from Nurse Keith, Nurse Keith Coaching is here with us. Uh, at least he's in New Mexico, um, and I'd like to bring him in here to my studio. How are you, Keith? I'm good, Kevin. Thank you. I just came back from your state of Colorado. My wife and I were in Pagosa Springs for the weekend, so sorry you weren't there with us, Kevin. But we did think of you. I'm sure you did. And, uh, I did. I really, really did. Um, <laughs> and I just want to um, share my excitement that we have two fellow Santa Feans on the show tonight. And we're actually not face-to-face because our technology is just not there yet to do face-to-face interviews. But we have Janet and Marcy from Palliative Care Services of Santa Fe here in the studio, the virtual studio, and we'll be introducing them in just a couple of minutes. But thanks for everyone for tuning in. And Kevin's going to give a little information about how to connect with us online and how to connect with us after the show is over. So can you do that, Kevin? You bet. But actually, what I want to do is just give another shout-out back to Teresa Brown. Last week, um, Teresa Brown, RN, uh, author of Critical Care, A New Nurse Faces Death, Life, and Everything in Between. What a show that was last week, and um, still riding on the high, but I think we're going to have another show like that this evening. And so thank you so much, Teresa, for coming on the show. We can't wait to have you back. Um, So anyway... Hope you're joining us live here, and if you are, uh, I'd like to actually give you guys a shout-out if you're on uh, Twitter. Um, And so we uh, typically use tweetchat.com forward slash room forward slash RNFM radio, that's all one word, or hashtag RNFM radio. Um, And I was actually just talking to Keith about uh, this this evening. You can definitely catch us on iTunes. Just uh, type in under the podcast, RNFM radio, all one word. Um, I've been getting some feedback, calls and emails, and people just letting me know that they are catching us on iTunes. So if you can't catch us live or if you are catching us live and you just want to hear the show again, um, take us with you. You know, put us on your your uh, MP3 players. Probably have an iPod. I'll just go ahead and throw that out there. You can also find us on ProMedNetwork.com forward slash RNFM Radio. And please, by all means, we welcome callers. We had some callers last week, which we really do enjoy having callers. So don't hesitate to call in. The number is 347-308-8064. All right. I think that's how you can find us. We're here. I think that's about it, Kevin, and uh, thanks so much. And again, the tweet chat is open at pound RNFM radio. If you have questions for us or our guests, just type in pound RNFM radio into your Twitter, um, into your tweet, and we will respond as soon as we can. I just wanted to mention the guests coming up for the next few weeks. Next Monday on the 18th of June, we have Lisa Summers and Janet Besner of the Coalition for Patients' Rights. That should be a really interesting conversation. We're very excited about that. And on the 25th, the following week, we have Stacy Turnier and Linda Leakley of Embracing Civility and EmbracingCivility.com. And they believe that 
re-embracing civility in healthcare is the true healthcare reform that we need to turn healthcare around in this country. That'll be a great conversation. And on July 2nd, for the July 4th weekend, we will have a rerun. And I think Kevin and I agreed that we're going to be rerunning Teresa Brown because that was such an incredible conversation and we just can't get enough of Teresa. Anyway, tonight we are very pleased and honored to have Janet Smith and Marcy Grace of Palliative Care of Santa Fe. Marcy Grace has dedicated her life to hospice and palliative care. She currently works collaboratively with the Wayne Family Foundation, and she's created an affiliation with the Baylor Hospital's Palliative Care Center in Dallas, Texas. Her palliative care and hospice career began as an emotional support volunteer for the New Mexico AIDS services during the AIDS epidemic in the 1980s, and we'll get to that during our conversation. She then founded Hand in Hand, which was a 501c3 that trained nearly 1,000 volunteers to assist AIDS patients. She later was awarded the Star for Life for Extraordinary Support by an activist by, by an activist by the Santa Fe Cares for her work in co-founding Hope House, which was a residential facility that fulfilled the need for housing people with HIV and AIDS here in Santa Fe, and we're very interested to talk to her about that. She also received a letter of recommendation from President Bill Clinton for the development of the Whitney Project. This project was an award-winning learning pro program for children in Santa Fe, which paired children with AIDS in other parts of the world with classrooms in Santa Fe. Currently, she serves as the Director of Palliative Care Services of Santa Fe. And Janet Smith is an experienced acute care and hospice nurse originally trained at the University College Hospital in London, England. Her work has spanned the spectrum of healthcare, and she's worked extensively in neonatal intensive care units, labor and delivery unit at St. Vincent Hospital right here in Santa Fe, and managed a caseload of 150 patients with HIV-AIDS in a holistic family practice, and she served as the charge nurse of a 30-bed geriatric unit. She has very in-depth palliative care experience working as the assistant care coordinator at the hospice center and the Sangre de Cristo hospice here in northern New Mexico, training volunteers for hospice and aid services, and she's worked as a chemotherapy nurse. She has a great interest and expertise in complementary medicine and serves as the nurse consultant for palliative care services of Santa Fe. So speaking of palliative care services of Santa Fe, their desire is to alleviate the suffering and enhance the quality of those individuals and their loved ones confronted with active, advanced, life-threatening illness by providing palliative care services in the home, nursing home, or the hospital. They advocate for symptom management, psych, social, and spiritual support, and compassionately listen for the wants, needs, hopes, dreams, and providing support as needed through highly trained and supervised volunteers who care for their clients. So we'll hear a lot more about palliative care services of Santa Fe. We're very excited to have Marcy and Janet here. So Marcy and Janet, that's a long intro, but thank you for being here, and please say hello. Well, thank you for all the nice things that you said. Hello, everybody. Oh, you're very welcome. So you and I, um, the both, both of you and I have met at several cafes in Santa Fe and sat and shared a coffee and I've heard your stories and your stories are fascinating and that's why I was very desirous to have you on the show. So the first thing I would really love for you to talk about is how the two of you met and how this partnership first came to be back in the 1980s. Um, I 
I'll just go ahead and jump in there. Um, I was working in a family, uh, holistic um, family practice in Santa Fe, and about 1986, um, we saw our first um, AIDS patient. Um, I can still see the person's face when they came in and said, I'm HIV positive, will you take care of me? They'd come from New York, and they'd come to Santa Fe to die. There was no available treatment at that time. And we said, we don't know anything about AIDS, and they said, nobody does. So we said, sure, we'll take care of you. Um, we really were in a position at that point then of um, um, accepting all AIDS um, HIV-positive patients or AIDS patients um, into our practices. We were the only people offering that care. Um, so it was a pretty, it was a pretty um, crazy time because we had the busiest family practice in town because of the holistic um, piece we were doing. And also we were suddenly seeing all these, these um, very, very sick people who needed care as well. Um, Across the board, these people did not want to be admitted to the hospital unless it was totally necessary. And we were at that point thinking, well, what do we do? Which is when Marcy stepped up to the plate, and I'll let her. Mm. <laughs> I will. She was actually a patient at the time um, in our practice, and saw the need very, very clearly. You know, in a much clearer way than we did. Uh, sort of overall need of this community of people with this diagnosis, and she jumped in. Hmm. She really saved our bacon. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so you, Janet. So uh, my first experience um, was I went to work as a volunteer for New Mexico AIDS Services, and I started out answering the phone and um, graduated to the emotional support program, which after a period of time, I began to find it, not that it wasn't a good program, but it was insufficient for the needs of AIDS patients. And of course, there was tremendous urgency at that time because People were not living for long. Sometimes we'd get a patient one day and the next day they'd be gone. And mm -hmm. so we had very little time to make a difference in their lives. So I got involved in starting a practical support organization that would do more of the cooking and the cleaning and the walking the dog and the going to the grocery store and then mixing that back with the emotional support work so that you had sort of a dual um, level of support, that you had someone you could talk to about the things you were going through, and at the same time, um, your practical needs were being met. And mm. as Janet said, there was no infrastructure here. Um, Nothing had reached us, and uh, people thought we were a, a low-incident state and that the services would be good, and we, we were not a low-incident state. Um, we had a lot of Native sons coming back to Santa Fe after having moved to San Francisco and New York and Chicago, and coming back to their families, and that raised all sorts of cultural 
issues with the Hispanic and Native American community here. And we had to learn on our feet. I had no qualifications for the job, none. And I sort of learned on the fly. And some doctors in town were very generous with me and with their time, and I got up to speed very quickly. Um, What what began to happen... I'm sorry. No, go ahead, please. Um, What began to happen is that every time we turned around, there was another need. So I'm just going to speak briefly about the most pressing need. Um, We had a number of patients who were homeless, essentially. They had gone through all of their money, and they had nothing left and no place to live. So we tackled starting... Hope House, which was the HIV residential project. And that is a whole story in itself, which will factor into what we have to say about palliative care also. Mm-hmm. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there for now. Okay. So it, it sounds like back at that time, I was involved too in AIDS care in the North Shore of Boston out in Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And of course, in Boston, New York, LA, San Francisco, there was a lot more happening at the time. But out in the hinterland, so to speak, a lot of us were flying by the seat of our pants because we didn't have access to what people may have had access to in the larger cities. And my assumption is I've only been in Santa Fe two years, but at the time, that many years ago, Santa Fe was a very small city then. Yeah. I mm-hmm. yeah. And Absolutely. Yeah. per capita, we had just a huge concentration of HIV um, patients. It was enormous, you know, per capita compared to mm-hmm. other places. I mean, I think, I think we were sixth in the nation next to, you know, L.A. or San Francisco. And, and it was so brilliant to watch how the community responded it almost seems it almost seems if that um was kind of some fuel because i mean i have to say to everyone here um i'm not I, I won't speak of myself but i guess it's just you know for the three of you um when you're talking about diving into something that basically with not really having the lights on so to speak i mean you were kind of just sort of finding your way through the dark here yes, in such were. A dire need um, and and the fuel of just at least the response of the community because not only trying to manage patients but really I want to say like a business but just you know an organization you know an entity trying to hold that together try to manage the patients and then it's great that you were able to reach out to and, and find some resources to help you along the way um, that says a lot um, about you your character and of course just to say for the profession of nursing, just nurses in general, just doing that. Um, and, and the structure fell together very quickly with case managers, and um, it was it was pretty phenomenal how quickly it moved. Um, mm. And there was so much going on in terms of, you know, research and, um, you know, the, the political um, thing at the time of finding the right drugs, because it seemed like a race against time, really. We were uh-huh. losing, you know, our five or six of our peers every week. It was unlike right. anything I'd ever been through before. Uh-huh. And there was uh-huh. nothing we could do in the early days except care and comfort. 
Right. Right. And the driving force really was urgency. The whole thing was about urgency. Mm-hmm. How fast can we catch up and start really providing some quality care? And how can we get an infrastructure built? And how can we get money? Right. Now, of course, at that time, and this will play into palliative care, at that time it was very easy to give to get money. People were very open about um, jumping on the bandwagon and being financially dedicated to the cause. They didn't necessarily want to do the hands-on work, um, but they did want to participate. And so the money was not difficult when when we um, when we did Hope House. Um, we raised in in uh, 15 months enough to buy a, a bed and breakfast. Whoa! <laughs> um, how did you? Well, how how did you reach out? I mean, what was your outreach like? I mean. Who did you talk to? I mean, where did you go? Where did how well, did you go we about that? To, we talked to prominent Spanifeans, and there was always a joke that if I invited you to lunch, you better get your checkbook out. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Okay. And and people did. I mean, it was it was amazing. Right. But mm. no one, as Janet said, no one had ever seen anything like this. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we we had you know we had men we had women we we had we had a, a full blown population of AIDS right. patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, the energy that surrounds that just seems incredible to me. I just envision you know people around you who are willing to basically not necessarily roll up their sleeves, but roll up their checkbooks or whatever you want right. to say, you know, exactly. or, or roll up their sleeves and write the check. Um, is that you were like trying to douse this fire that was just going, 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 but you're just throwing water. And as you were saying, you were against time. You know, science hadn't really, you know, caught up with with that as far as, you know, medical treatment. And I I just, I don't know. I just just got this incredible vision of you guys just really just trying to put this thing out, trying to extinguish it or at least keep it at bay or whatever and just take care of these folks. And I don't know. I just, I just, for a moment there, I just got moved. I don't know. Mm. I, well, uh-huh. in the, what I what I would like to say also is that in the meantime, the goal was to provide uplifting care. These were young people. Mm-hmm. They were not interested in hospice. They didn't want to hear anything about hospice, which was a, a shame because hospice, you know, can do a great job. But they were too young. And so it became the first sort of murmurings of comfort care or individual patient care or, you know, that special kind of listening that we did both during AIDS and now during palliative care. And and people who were really demanding high quality of medical care and really, really... Really, really educated consumers. So you had to really be on your toes to help them navigate mm-hmm. navigate the whole medical system right. because they were demanding that. 
So we had to rise to that. And we were being pushed all the time to provide, you know, excellent care. Right. So they were very informed. They were informed Mm. consumers, if you like. Right, right. That's Um, a good way to put it. Yeah, Janet, I just wanted to point out on a technical level that your voice is fading in and out. So if you oh, can okay. stay real close to the phone, that would okay. be great. We'll see if that improves a little bit. Uh, Marcy, you, you sound fine. Yeah. Um, so you all cut your teeth on this process and this epidemic that was devastating the country and later the world, of course, in other, in other countries around the world. But here in Santa Fe, you you leveraged your connections, you leveraged your the infrastructure that there was here, and you created a new infrastructure because there really wasn't one for what you needed to do. And what I'm interested now in talking about in beginning the conversation of how that experience translated into what you're doing now. So we could talk about the AIDS epidemic and what you did and what we all did back in those days, and it would be wonderful to spend a few hours but I'm I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> well, how it how it carried over. I mean, for mm-hmm. for me at least, um, how exactly. it carried over is the same the same thing that happened with AIDS. I lived in San Francisco in the '70s, and you know there were starting to be murmurings of of you know the gay illness, and I started to feel very compelled by what I was hearing. Same thing with palliative care. I I first heard the words palliative care, and I felt extremely compelled by that. Um, It sounded familiar. And, you know, there were there were circumstances. My family was involved with the, the palliative care program, at Baylor University Medical Center, which is one of the the most cutting-edge programs in the country. And um, I I snuck in through the back door. Um, I found the doctor who ran the program, and I found the nurses and the, you know, the psychosocial people, and I said, teach me. And they were very willing to do that. So we took a group of us and nurses and an architect and me, (laughs) you know, all sorts of different players went to Dallas and did several days of training. And that was, that was the beginning. Um, I, I immediately grasped what they were doing. Without the AIDS experience, I would not have. Now I think for Janet it that was is, somewhat different. Sort, that is sort of how it happened. But I remember after the epidemic, not seeing Marcy for quite some time, and running into her in the grocery store, and she looked at me and she said, "Palliative care," and I went, "Right." A <laughs> <laughs> light went on, <laughs> and that was great. Well, then, yeah. Right, and when they write the history of your business and the movement that you're starting, they'll erect a plaque in the grocery store right at that spot just to show where it all began. (laughs) By the produce section. In the produce section. It is a wonderful story, and and it stuck with me from the first time Janet told me the story several months ago. She told me the story of how she passed Marcy in the produce aisle at a local store, and she looked at her and said, 
palliative care. And the interesting thing to me about that story, or one of the interesting things, there's many, is how both of you, with those two words, each of you knew what the other was thinking, and it seems to me, from having met you both several times, that you knew exactly what needed to be done. Is that true? I think there was, yeah, yeah. There was a vision. Yeah, there was a vision. Um, I knew right away that the hospital setting was not for us, um, and I, you know, have a. I generally have have problems with high levels of organization, and um, I like to fly under the radar a little bit. So the hospital setting seemed too mandated, and also it, it seemed in many ways limited. And so because we've always done community projects, that's what kept coming up. How can we do this for the community? How can this be a real, true, you know, community response to what is essentially a much bigger problem than AIDS. And in a way, I mean, it's how I really see palliative care is it's caring, catching up with technology. You know, in a way, hmm. we're, the technology piece has just been done. And it's, it's, it's not about that anymore. You know, in the U.S., it's, we're paying close to 8000 per year for medical care per individual. And it's twice as much as any of the other developed countries. It's twice as much as Canada, Japan, UK. And it doesn't make the care here any better. It's not high on the list of quality, but we're using huge amounts per individual. So and in way, I, I think that... I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm just saying in a way... You know, it's the piece that's missing is the caring, and I think oftentimes doctors are trying to substitute the technology and the sophisticated testing for, you know, just not being able to directly speak with the person about what really are their goals of care at this point with perhaps the chronic serious illness. Well, and I wanted to jump in here. <clears throat> um, it is interesting to hear you uh, talk about the technology. Do you, so possibly in this model, you know, maybe that's not as as important. I mean, do you feel, you know, I'll kind of be on the hot seat here, you know, kind of bring this out, because I'm, I'm definitely a big technology advocate, but that's just me. That's who I am, uh, you know, innovative nurse always, not just technology, but just how we innovate and implement technologies into our practice do you feel globally that um, it, it has a place and maybe certain subspecialties not so much and we kind of need to peel some of that away to get sort of closer to the patient? Or and, and do you see, on the other side of that, do you see some benefit where technology has offered uh, something to the clinician so that they can get closer to the patient or spend more time Absolutely. with the patient? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay. I I see palliative care ultimately as the answer to our, you know, enormous healthcare problem in the United States. I mean, before we talk globally, we have to we have to admit to what's going on here. 
and that we haven't found a great way of dealing with people who are in the final stages of their lives. And the technology is fine. What's wonderful about palliative care is you know that our patients can receive technological treatment while they are under palliative care, as opposed to hospice, which takes patients who've really gotten to a point where they're saying, okay, this is it, no more chemo, no more radiation, I'm finished. And I think that's why, you know, hospice has sort of shrunk down to the last couple weeks of life. And that mm-hmm. is the statistic. Mm-hmm. I mean, technology can coexist with palliative care easily. Yeah. So while with palliative care you don't have to make those choices about doing curative treatment, because you don't, you can continue with whatever you want, we also have the ongoing conversation, and that can be over years, of, you know, what are the goals of care? What what do you want to do, and what do you not want to do at this point? Mm-hmm. And what do you want to do today? Mm-hmm. And what do you want to do tomorrow? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for making these clarifying points, uh, because both of you, because I think there's a lot of confusion out there about what palliative care is, yes, as opposed to hospice, even among nurses. And I can say, even for myself, even several years ago, I didn't really understand the technical difference between the two. And I pr- greatly appreciate you clarifying that. And I think it's something a lot of healthcare providers need to understand. Well, the best way the system can work is for palliative patients to come into palliative care as soon as possible after diagnosis or when they begin to have symptoms or problems related to disease. They come in early. They receive palliative treatment for whatever period of time that is until they need to be referred to hospice. And it's an excellent pairing of the two styles of care for end of life. Now, hospice programs, a number of them, take patients all the way through, particularly in hospitals where you have a high level of things that we don't have here. You have transplants, you have trauma, you have all sorts of things that require that palliative care be delivered in the hospital. Now, our goal is very different than that. Our goal is mm-hmm. to keep people out of the hospital. Mm-hmm. But, but provide them with excellent um, care on that continuum by interfacing with their doctors and by um, um, placing volunteers in the home as practical support. I find that if I have a client that's not in crisis, then I I don't have to visit that person or even call them. My volunteer then becomes my eyes and ears about mm. if there's any decline in the condition, and you know they'll call me right away. So right. Sh- mm. seems to be more short of breath, or so and so seems to be their endurance isn't as good, or their pain seems to be increasing, and that's the whole concept of palliative care, that you go in when the person's in crisis, you manage the crisis, interface with their physician, and then when they're stable, you can pull out. 
The volunteer, right. however, remains that continuous care. And even when our clients are discharged to hospice, that volunteer stays with them. They're the one person that has their story. Nurses and doctors come and go, but the volunteer can be with that person for, theoretically, you know, many years, perhaps. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's... Um, I I want people, if you did... Well, I'm, I hope you just heard what she just said, because this type of model is where it's going. This is where it is. This is the future. This is how we can save the fractured healthcare system by these types of service by providing these types of services having this type of model this type of organization how we can provide care as nurses and that being said can you walk us through what this model is what what is the day to day what what are you providing exactly as yeah, if, that you start yeah. so, yes please so day to day i you know i have my my client list and I look down my list I I know the ones that are stable and seem fine and I may not even do a check-in call with them I know that they're getting a volunteer visit maybe once twice or three times a week and I know that volunteers taking care of that person I'm on call 24-7 um, um, which sounds like a lot but actually I tuck my patients up very well that I don't get that many calls, really. But it's also a real feeling of security to patients that know that they can call me if they can't get hold of their doctor on call or, or for whatever reason, you know, even if they can get hold of their doctor on call just for extra support. Um, so I will, you know, check in with clients that have perhaps had... Um, uh, difficult pain control or symptom control, and I'll check in with them daily until I feel that they're more stable. And um, same with shortness of breath or any other you know, debilitating um, symptom. Um, and really, you know, it's it's I I have a broad spectrum of clients. Some are cancer patients, quite a few are cancer patients, but. I also have, you know, end-stage heart failure and Parkinson's disease and, um, you know, there's a, a broad spectrum of chronic serious illnesses where somehow those people have decided, I don't want to do the revolving door through the hospital anymore. I, I just don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Many of my patients, I accompany them to their doctor's visits and I take notes for them and I interpret what the doctors say and help them perhaps making choices in their treatment if they ask me for that. And um, it's really um, very different in a lot of different ways. I mean, I had a visit this afternoon with a, a client that's just been discharged to hospice and is a um, Buddhist and wanted me to be apprised of the ritual that she wants to do around her dying process because she yeah. has her family members here and just really holding space for her with that and supporting her in that. Mm. Um, so there's all this... I wish I could say, really, it, for me it's more like filling the gaps of what's missing in their continuum of care. 
the pieces that aren't done so well, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Palliative care is extremely fluid. Um, we can get a patient in crisis and in a matter of days we can get them propped up, feeling better, feeling as though they have a support system. And that's sort of through the interdisciplinary work with other care providers, the volunteers, um, the people at the Cancer Institute or, you know, whatever doctor's office. Um, but it, it can move easily. It's not, it, it's not heavy. Um, and Janet does a lot of interfacing with the medical people. She talks to doctors. She advocates for patients who are having problems getting their pain straightened out. Um, just there's so many things. Now, I, on the other hand, um, generally move in after Janet has done her consults, and I work in the psychosocial and spiritual aspect of palliative care, which um, I think is, incredibly important Um, people want to move through the issues that are facing them they may not want to do it the same way every day and as I said they may choose chemo one day and nothing the next and they're not going to eat two weeks or drink for two weeks and and it, it changes and you have to be fluid with it and that's that's one of the really interesting parts of it. A really important piece too is, I think, um, the legacy work that that people need to complete sometimes. That's work that we do with yeah. patients that assist them in in leaving some kind of legacy, which can be as simple as as a letter to a child, or as complicated as a video or a book or, um, you know, something that helps people feel that they will be remembered, that there will always be some part of them that goes forward. Helping them to finish things that they feel are unfinished, and that's that's often an even more important piece than the disease process. Very often mm-hmm. it's something that needs to be completed and then you'll find that they can relax and really move more into their dying process. Um, right. one, thing I want, one thing I want to say is that, you know, hospice and end-of-life care is very, very underused, um, not just nationally but, but globally. You know, people say, oh, I want to die at home. and But in reality, 20 to 25% of people are achieving that. Hmm. And 75% are asking for it. Yes. So most people are, in reality, even though they're saying they want to be in a home setting, are dying in nursing homes, in hospitals, in intensive care units. A very high majority of people are in, I think it's something like 40% in intensive Mm -hmm. care units. It's not what people imagine or imagine that they want, but in reality, that's what's happening. Well, fear comes up, and mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we do is help to alleviate fear. We're a safety net for people. They know that as long as we're with them, nothing you know, catastrophic is going to happen. They're going to have choices mm-hmm. along the way. If they decide mm-hmm. they want to go to the hospital, 
They can go to the hospital. It's fine if they do want to go, but our goal is to keep them comfortable and um, well taken care of at home. And my 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 prayer really for for palliative care is that if if it's really a robust program, then I think it you will have a much earlier referral to hospice. And you know, hospice is a is a quality of dying. It's great. It it couldn't be better than that. Mm-hmm. You know, with palliative care, we're much more about quality of life while that's available to the person. Right. But also we will do a much more timely referral to hospice so that that's all in place and the person's comfortable and can relax for, you know, average length of stay in hospice is two weeks. It's so short. When I was a hospice nurse, it was always crisis, crisis, crisis. Mm. So two weeks before they died and you had so much to put in place. So this can actually revitalize hospice in many ways. And I believe it will, totally. I just just wanted to pop in here and ask you, do you have experience with or advocate for, use, uh, something along the lines of uh, five wishes, Um, talking to people about... Yes, sure. You're right, fear uh, is one of those things, especially when you're you're in the clinical setting, the hospital, and... You're trying to talk to the docs and say, listen, you know, there's a guarantee that this person is, you know, this patient's, you know, probably, you know, going to pass fairly soon. The wish is this. They want to be home. And there's fear, like understanding, like, well, how do we get, how do we make that happen? You have like every team member on the one side of the team of the patient, such as myself, because I'm a patient advocate. And I could have the entire team, like, let's say that this person has a place to go to, a family willing to accept this person, and I would even be able to provide some of those services, or we could get people into the home to provide those services. But it, it's a huge, like, hurdle to jump when you're talking to the clinical staff about that. Yeah. Um, and I just, you, I'm sure you're aware, but it's just interesting where you have um, wishes that are sort of written out by an attorney that are very clinical do not intubate, do not, you know, drugs, do not this, do not. But five wishes just sort of, I think, presents it in more of a non-confrontational, very easy manner, very matter-of-fact, very conversation, like as if, you know, I just want to tell you this is what I feel, this is what I believe, this is what the family wants, this is what I want. Um, So that was a roundabout way just to kind of get to the point that I was trying to to make was, you know, five wishes, what do you feel about it? Well, what the one thing I have to say is you would be shocked at the number of patients who come to us who have not signed any documents mm. laying out, you know, how they want to be dealt with as they become less able to advocate for themselves. So, yeah, we have to get in there with the five wishes or, you know, we've even been known to write our own documents Um the New Mexico Advanced Health Directive is a very, you know, really cut and dried document, but you can write anything into that that you want. So we try to work as creatively with those documents as possible. But we we find that it's very important for people to have those documents and so that at least we know where they stand. 
I, I far prefer mm. five wishes to anything else because and, it's very humanistic. And, and, and to revisit it, too, you know, frequently to revisit that. Is this still what, you, what you're desiring? Do you want to add anything to that? It's a beautiful exercise to do with people. It really is. And that conversation really can dispel fears. People want that conversation. They just don't know how to do it. That's and sometimes right. Sometimes they have a difficult time doing it with the ones they love. Mm-hmm. I had a huge, I went through recently a huge transformation personally in how I felt about those documents. I'll just tell it real briefly. I have two daughters. One is 21, one is 36. I had signed a document um, saying that I, you know, I didn't, I, I, I wanted to, you know, be kept on fluid. I wanted to be, you know, I was hedging, like, give me a little more time, not too much. You know, I don't want any of the real gruesome stuff, but give me a little. And then I woke up one day, you know, months later, thinking, who would want to put these gorgeous girls through the suffering involved in lingering? And I changed those documents immediately. Mm. Mm. And I felt much better. Right. Marcy, that's a very moving statement. I have a a son who will be 29 next month, and he's married, and we don't have any grandchildren yet, but we've experienced a lot of death in our lives between my wife and I and people we know, family and friends, and we've watched people go through those experiences of, one, not having any documentation for their families having no guidance whatsoever, trying to figure out what it is that this person wanted. Um, Whereas other people have it very well delineated, very, very clear um, and concise so that the family is guided in some manner along the trajectory of what to do as the person becomes unconscious, as they're no longer able to make decisions. And then once even, you know, and once they die, what you know? What do they want done with their body? What do they want to happen? And that's it's such a central human experience of having a loved one die mm. and get ill, um, and then having to deal with the aftermath, deal with the process. And I'm so moved. I have to say, and this is one reason I wanted the two of you on our show, is that I'm so moved by the fact that what you're offering is here in my new hometown, that you're offering these services, and I really want to try to help be an advocate for people to know what it is that you're offering and how this service can be replicated, how it can be expanded, and how others can learn from your experience. And a few minutes ago, I think it was you... Janet, who mentioned your volunteers. And I know that yes. your volunteers are very central to what you do. Can yeah. you very briefly just describe what your small volunteer army is really about and how yeah. they become trained? They are. And, um, you know, when I, was, when I was working with Marcy during the AIDS epidemic, I really only did the, the hands-on piece of that, which was, you know, transferring somebody from the bed to the wheelchair and, you know, all of those sort of things. So I'd only seen that 
piece of the volunteer training, not not the whole thing. So this has been a really um, a, a wonderful experience um, creating uh, this training with Marcy. And um, Marcy has always been very clear about the the the, the central piece of the um, training has really about being present for people, being really, really present, meeting that person wherever they are. It's so easy, you know, especially as nurses, to go into patients' homes with an agenda, an agenda that, oh, I don't know, their pain needs to be under control or the family needs to stop fighting or they need a more calm atmosphere or whatever. And, you know, in reality, that is not the case. You're in the person's home. It's very, very different from a clinical setting. And when I, I took a volunteer in, into a, um, a patient's house a couple of weeks ago, a lady with stage 4 breast cancer, he, I was in the kitchen and we were reorganizing her closets for her because she couldn't climb on the ladder anymore and we were cleaning the kitchen a bit together. And I was just talking to the client. And when we came out from the visit, he said, that was so great. You, you, you were, I could see you were taking so much information about that patient. And, you know, it was the volunteer that brought that to my notice. I don't actually realize what I'm doing in visits sometimes. But I realize uh -huh. what I am doing is looking at the way the person moves, looking at who's in the home setting, looking at their pain level, you know, by their face, looking at how they're interacting with me, and that gives me an idea of how they're functioning. I'm really taking in so much information while uh -huh. I'm drying their dishes or doing whatever. And really, in that setting, people are so much more unguarded and forthright with the information about what's going on with them than any kind of clinical assessment that I could ever do. I'm getting so much uh -huh. more information. Mm. And that's really what the volunteers do, what we train them to do, to be really present for that person and see, you know, see what's going on with them emotionally, spiritually. Are they suffering in that way? Are they physically suffering? Can they make their bed anymore? Can they, you know, all of those things. It's a much different assessment that you do in a person's home than in a hospital. I want to just mention that we've taken that one step further. Um, at one time, we had huge plans. We had a, a five-phase plan that <laughs> we were going to do this, and we were going to have a day center, and we were going to have a house, and we were going to have all of these things. And it boiled, it boiled down to we have the project, we work with patients, we have the volunteers, we have the training, and we have the store, which we'll talk about, I, I hope, at some point. Um, we but, will. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what's, what, is, what we've done in realizing we've had all sorts of people come into our training from all walks of life. We've had lawyers. We've had nurses. We've had, you know, psychologists. We've had you name it. And we've had people with no experience. And, and frankly, sometimes they're the best kind because they come with no preconceived notions. Um, we have made our training available to anyone in the community who wants to go through the training. It's a two-weekend, very intensive 
training. And uh, we don't charge for it. It's our gift to the community in hopes that through this, people will become more aware. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I, I actually had to, I have to say this. I mean, my arms went up not... I mean that's that's just amazing. The fact that you volunteer your time um and 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 talk about it as a gift. I I'm not saying that that's wrong. I'm just saying that that's incredible just what you're giving back. I mean it just this story just keeps getting better and better and to the next level here. I mean I'm very, I told you very, that. very compelling. <laughs> I I can't tell you. I mean when we first started the training last July Marcy said, well, we're going to do two full weekends. And I, my first thought was, you've got to be kidding. Nobody's going to give up two weekends to come and sit and listen to, to us talking. You know, for, And after the first weekend, at 9 o'clock the following weekend, they were sitting there. They were saying, we could not wait to get back. And, wow. you know, it's really, it's a, for me, I think it's a basic human need when we serve and when we give in that way, just for no reason. The, it's such a good feeling. It's such a good feeling. It's a real high to do that. You feel really kind of completed as a human being. You're just going in and just doing, you know, the most mundane of things. And it's having an impact on somebody's life. Mm. I, I think that's where I, I mean, I feel like I'm riding on this high right now, thinking about people wanting to hear me speak. I mean, obviously, let's say that, you know, I'm doing this for free, giving back, but they're so, they're like hanging on every word, every mm-hmm. motion, everything that I'm doing, um, because they truly want to be there and they do see it as a gift. I, I'm, again, I, I'm at a loss for anything better than to say that I'm extremely extremely moved by this. Well, um, you know, it's it's not that difficult to convey what we do because sometimes what we do, as Janet said, is very little. It's mm-hmm. just somehow giving people a sense that someone is there. That they're connected. And right. that's, that's really what all of us want. You know, what's interesting, well, I, well, no, I was just going to say, what's interesting for me is that um, I have a patient advocacy company, and I do this stuff, but to hear it from someone else on the show, has it's, it's pretty incredible. I guess maybe when I tell the story about what I do, maybe people feel the same way, but it's fun. I'm, I'm on the sure other side right do. now. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm on the other side. I mean, right uh-huh. now I'm actually I'm I'm interviewing you, or we're talking here, having a conversation, and I'm actually texting a caregiver right now about one of my patients. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And because like I have I have to be there for my patients. Um, yeah. You know, I tell people I, I I'm not in banking or finance. I don't work nine to five. I'm a nurse. I provide these services. You need me when you need me. If uh-huh. I can be there, I will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but to hear you tell the story again, it's as someone who provides services very similar. I just I'm loving it. Yeah. Mm. Thank you and, very much. Right, and Kevin, this is why I wanted Marcy and Janet on the show because I knew that 
that you personally and professionally would really resonate with what they're doing. And as a business person, I thought you would also find it interesting from the business point of view as well, which we'd like to talk about too. And uh, Marcy, a few minutes ago you mentioned the store, and mm-hmm. I've been to your store. Um, we've spoken about the services that that Janet provides as a nurse, you know, accompanying patients and clients to their appointments, coming mm-hmm. in and giving 24-hour call, training volunteers, helping the volunteers get into the home and actually provide volunteer services and support as they're needed. So mm-hmm. tell us about the store and what, what that's about. Well, it's, it's, um, it's sort of an interesting story. Um, we realized when we put the program together that ultimately we were going to need a revenue stream. And, you know, since 2008, we started in 2008, but we got off to a very, very slow start because all those people who had opened their pockets so generously for AIDS um, were not in the mood to be opening their pocketbooks. And so raising any funds for this was impossible. So uh, some of the board members kicked in some money, and, you know, we got the, the project part off the ground. But we realized very quickly that we we had to have revenue. And what we decided to do was something that my mother actually had done 20-something years ago at Baylor Hospital. Um, she opened, she, she was a cancer survivor, and um, she opened a store in Baylor that um, provided for women to be fitted with prosthesis you know, while they were still at the hospital, so they didn't have to leave the hospital not feeling whole. And they carried very beautiful things that made women feel very good about themselves. And it was a wonderful success, really wonderful. It's still going on. And I, I sort of thought back, and I thought, you know, that's that's a little old. That was then, and, and this is now. And what if we take our our sort of theme and put it into a retail store? And one of our board members I went to high school with, and he has had an enormous career in the retail industry, um, enormous. And I have some retail background. And we said, what if we put a store together and everything in it is lovely and smells good and feels good and is is all about, you know, the things that we like to have around ourselves. Whether we're we're sick or not, it really doesn't matter. You know, a candle is a candle. A beautiful piece of silk is a beautiful piece of silk. So we bought for the store in in that manner of thinking. And so far we've been open for Hmm, two and a half months, and we're doing very, very well. And, of course, all the mm. profits go to the program. That's great to hear. That's great to hear. So how does the how do people find out about the store, and how do customers or potential customers react to the fact that this is a, you know, a nice high-end store in downtown Santa Fe benefiting palliative care as opposed to, say, all of the hospices in God everywhere who have thrift stores who support their services. So what's the reaction, what's the feedback that you get 
to well, to they're thrilled. I mean, you know, I I talk, and when I'm in the store, which is not that often, but when I go in the store, I always speak to someone who's a customer who has gotten intrigued with the concept because maybe their mother experienced palliative care. When there's starting to be a little more of a general awareness. Now, we've mm. we've already been approached about doing a store in another city associated with a medical center. So wow. um I think that the the feedback has been very, very good. So would that be the same sort of higher end model of retail? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, we, mm. I call us mid-range because we go from, you know, very inexpensive goods to more expensive goods. Um, but we oh. level off sort of in the middle. Oh, sure. Okay. And, and there's something mm. for everyone there. No, I'm looking at the um, your Facebook page, mm-hmm. and I just tweeted it out, um, just put it out on Twitter to have people hopefully visit and like it. Oh, thank you. It, it definitely goes. Sure, sure. It mm-hmm. definitely goes against the traditional uh, thrift store, thrift <laughs> shop donations um, that a lot of these organizations tend to have help with. You know, sort of bridge some of those funding gaps. Um, Absolutely. Um, and I do. Find I mean, we're inter- we're doing something new. We're we're doing something different, and it's it's risk taking. It I mean, is. I'm not going to say that, you know, my heart doesn't beat fast at night when I'm thinking about it. Um, we're taking a risk here. Right, right. I mean, you have the passion for, you know, your core model, your core business right. um, outside of the retail store. So, you know, hopefully that energy, yeah, I mean, kind of shifts. I mean, but at the same time, you're having to wear, you know, sort of dual, well, I mean, I guess as entrepreneurs, as business owners, we all kind of wear the Uh the hats for sure. What a shift going from patient care to then having to think about (laughs) a a retail retail store. (laughs) Yes. Um, You know, it's so interesting, the retail aspect of it, because on Innovative Nurse, you know, I'm continuing to build content there. And one of the pieces of content that I wanted to write or help other nurses with was how to form like a retail entity, mm-hmm. brick and mortar or some, some sort of online presence um, like this. And, and I think that, you know, there are nurses out there that do um, sell, you know, certain essential oils, yeah. uh, aromatherapy, things like that. Yeah. But this really, I mean, this is full scale. I mean, you're talking... I mean, we've got clothing in here. We've got what? What do you? What else are you having there? Uh, like we have accessories. lots of gifts and things mm-hmm. that feel good and beautiful yeah. wraps and pajamas and beside the bed. And, yeah, I mean, you know, I would love to. <laughs> here's another idea. I would love to to help teach nurses and other care providers how to put a bedroom together for a patient that, say, is bed-bound. What are the things that you need in that room mm-hmm. to create comfort mm-hmm. for someone? You wow. Need, mm-hmm. 
You just you came pillows. up with a new business here. Right. You need pillows. You need beautiful things on the bed. You need a great little bed jacket. You need a great book. You need a candle. You you know, it goes on and on. You need a lovely soft Mm. popper for the mattress. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow. We sell alpaca pillows in the store. Wow. While we're talking about this, yeah. The store, I wanted to mention the Facebook page because there's no website right now. There's the Facebook page for people to visit. It's facebook.com forward slash Paladino Santa Fe. And Paladino is P-A-L-A-D-I-N-O, Paladino Santa Fe, spelled out straight. Facebook.com slash Paladino Santa Fe. It is a lovely Facebook page, and it's an even lovelier store. I've been there several times. It's at 839 Paseo de Peralta in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So uh, we're working on our web page for the project. Oh, good, mm-hmm. good, because I was going to ask you about that. What is Absolutely. the future for your web presence? Well, you um, know, it's we're right in the midst of the creative endeavor of putting it together, and you know, a lot of people are getting into product um, on the web page. We will probably get into product, but probably in some sort of interesting way. And, mm-hmm. of course, we plan on, you know, having our volunteer program represented and a variety of care providers in the community have wonderful content that, you know, they would love to get published. And mm-hmm. so I think whatever we do, it it will be somewhat unique. So you're going to give them a platform to publish certain content? Uh-huh. Oh, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It just keeps getting better. <laughs> and, and this is, I'd like to sort of add here, too, that, you know, really our commitment with our volunteer training and our monthly um, in-services that we do for volunteers, you know, we really, really want to support caregivers that are out there in the community doing providing care on their own without the support of an organization. And actually, they are the frontline caregivers. They're often untrained, long hours. They are brilliant, experienced people. And we really want to be able to provide them with ongoing um, education and just support, because they're out there doing it on their own, a lot of these guys. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the doctors that interface with the clients at end of life or the nurses the most. It's these it's these people, and they're, for the most part, you know, untrained. I'm not saying mm-hmm. unskilled, because they're incredibly skilled, but they're not trained caregivers. So right. we're really right. committed with palliative care to support these people, too. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I want to I stress that, that that is completely... True, and there are some amazing people out there. But I think it's equally as important for medical care providers to be going through this training. And, you know, I think sometimes I look around, I look at nurses, I see tremendous burnout, and I see that people have started to sort of do things one way as expediently as possible. Now, why is that? They're being forced to. They're absolutely being forced to. And, Uh you know, it's 
the time is money story. In that process, they're they're getting devastated emotionally. Devastated. Mm-hmm. Because they're yeah. having to come up with, with answers that they don't really have the answers to and and that they don't even realize they that they don't have to come up with answers. And they don't have to be they they really don't have to be problem solvers. Mm-hmm. And they don't I, have to fix people's lives. And I feel mm-hmm. like some of the bigger hospitals are now really starting to address this. You know, at UNM they have an art therapy program and a music therapy program for doctors and nurses. You know, uh, a room set aside for them to take breaks and do that kind of stuff to just balance out a little bit the intensity so of their work. Yeah. Well, so I think do. this is starting to come in a little bit, but I think it's just key. I think it's mm. key because I feel like all the technology in the world isn't going to improve patient care. Non-burned-out caregivers are what improves patient care. Right. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> Thank you. And and do you all do you all feel that? that when when professional caregivers like nurses, doctors, et cetera, come right. through your volunteer training, do you feel like in some ways it reinstills in them some some love, some compassion, in some sense that they can really do perhaps what they originally went into healthcare to do and then exactly. has been drummed out of them by the system? Exactly. exactly. I yeah. think yeah. that there's mm. healing that can take place. And I think that that sometimes people get so removed from what it was that they ori- originally set out to do that they, they mm-hmm. don't even remember what it was. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is a very different way of, of looking at things. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. we'll have a nurse come into the program who you know, uh, we'll pose the question, here's the client, here's the situation, what do you do? And the nurses always say, well, you do this and this and this and this and this. And, that, you know, it's it's all fix it. Um, and Marcy, Marcy gets pretty fierce at that point where she just says, <laughs> you don't need to fix anything. Well, <laughs> and, I, and that's you know, what I believe. And the relief in that, you can really see people shift that they don't have mm. to fix it. They really don't have to fix it. And it's not a criticism of nurses. It's not a criticism. It's what's happened to them. Mm. Right. It's the, the science of nursing mm. as opposed to what we might see as the art, part of the right. art of mm. care and compassion. And that is what has been lost to a large extent. And, you know, in my coaching practice, I talk to nurses who are burnt out, nurses who are so have been so driven down or drilled down mm. by technology and by the task-oriented nature of nursing where they feel that, you know, over in room 103 is the person is the liver failure and over in mm. room 2 is the kidney failure and they they start to fail to be able to see the person because all they can see is the list of tasks that they need to perform, mm. the boxes they need to check and the things they have to get done by the time their shift is over, and they lose that sense of, wow, you know, I really went into this because I wanted to hold someone's hand and be able to look in their eye for a moment. And 
and it really has gotten away from that. And you're giving such a service by allowing some caregivers to experience that again. Mm. Well, anyone can come. Mm. Anyone can come. I think Kevin's getting in his car right now. I know. Well, I just think when you when you talk about your volunteers and especially your non-medical volunteers but that that they are helping you out in the community one very important conversation that I have when I first work when I start working with the caregiver that's going to be with my patient is that it's extremely important for us to connect to have a synergy to mm-hmm. feel like we can open up to each other because I'll tell you I worked at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore um, in the cardiovascular uh, ICU, and it was the sickest of the sick. I mean, it was amazing work that I did there. Some of the incredible technology that was, you know, doing the thing, you know, just stuff. I mean, for a guy, it was perfect. I mean, it was great. But what I will say is that I didn't use the clinical skills that I do now. Uh, working in the community and working with those volunteers. Well, these aren't volunteers. These are these are definitely care providers. Um, they're not like CNAs or anything like that. I mean, these right. are family homes. I know what Family you're homes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's extremely important that they like we have this connection because yeah. they are my they are my line to my patient, yeah. and I will give them my full attention when they are telling me, giving me the rundown of what's going on, so that I can Absolutely. better triage. Um, and you, in turn, are giving them the respect of yes. listening to them. Exactly. I don't care if they have a medical background or not, or if they said they, you know, that commercial they stayed in a Holiday Inn Express and they all of a sudden yeah, yeah. know everything. <laughs> um, they, they, you know, they really do value my input and what I can provide to them. They look to me as a support system, as a rock, right. as some voice to say it's either going to be okay. Or you know what? I think we've reached a point where we are going to have to seek services that I just cannot give you right now, and yeah. you probably mm-hmm. will have to go to urgent care or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. right, um, it's amazing how our clinical skills do sort of come to the surface, and we do become more in tune with our patients that way. Yeah, but as you say, well, you guys sound the volunteers like you're doing the amazing engineers. work. Yeah. yeah. Oh yes. Um, I mean, it, really, it sounds extraordinary. I could probably tell you some very inspiring stories or share those, but it's just funny. Like I said, I'm on the other side of the table here hearing your story, and I'm just completely moved, yet I'm I'm out there with you. I forgot to tell you one thing. Um, Please do. Do we have time for just a little time? You've got time, please, by all means. Absolutely. Um, We haven't talked about our doulas. When I was was a Baylor, they were getting involved with an organization called the Shira Risky Center in New York, which is a Jewish family organization that dealt with with death issues, you know, sitting with with the body and the ritual bathing and all of the things that, that are done in that culture. And mm. that was a long time ago and other people started approaching them and saying, Well, we you know, we need your help and, and we're Native American and we need your help, and we're Afghani. And it went on and on until now. They have 130 translators in the boroughs. They are serving a huge amount of people. 
And they've come up with a training, which I was fortunate enough to take a a training for trainers to teach people how to do this very specialized one-on-one work. And these would be the people that Janet was talking about where you assign a volunteer and the volunteer is there for that person and they're there the whole way. And um, we have, you know, at the end of our volunteer training, we ask people to determine what they want to do. Do they want to do practical support, take people to chemo, you know, walk the dog, whatever, or do they want to do doula work? And it's just extraordinary. I think it's it's such a, a good adjunct to everything else we're doing. But I just mm. wanted to mention that. Well, thank you. And, and you know, when, when people hear the word doula, myself included, I have to mm-hmm. show my ignorance here, is we think about a birth doula who right. works with a pregnant woman through the pregnancy process all through right. the birth and even postpartum. Can you explain what this model is? Can you clarify a little bit? This model is very much the same in that, you know, if if one were to compare the the time from when someone comes into palliative care to death, this is the person who walks alongside the patient every step of the way and is completely available to that patient. And as Janet said, those can be long relationships. We tell people they're making, you know, make two, three-year investments when they sign on. Right. People, incre- these people are trained to listen very deeply. It's, very it's deep. incredible. I mean, are you sure you don't have anything else you want to throw out there? I just, it you know, just, I do, I do have. <laughs> there's more that we've yeah. sort of been. We had a, a client who was in one of the nursing homes, very, very sick, who was a neighbor of Marcin's. And um, he had heard that we had a palliative program, and he'd asked for me to come in and visit with him. And when I went to visit with him, I could see he was much more appropriate for hospice, really. And but he wanted to go home. But he desperately wanted to go home. He'd been in UNM for months, and then he'd been in the nursing home for months, and he had a dog who was he was passionate about, and he just wanted to go home to die. He, I think he knew he was dying. He knew. So, yeah, I said, look, you know, you're not really appropriate for palliative care, but, you know, we could help to open you to hospice, and perhaps get you home but at the time I was thinking God I don't know how he had no <laughs> no family or anything and um, Marcy said well let's have a go so we put out an email to the neighborhood and it's a neighborhood of about probably about what 500 maybe? Mm, no less 250 okay put out the email and said you know there's a member of your community who's in his dying process and who would like to step up and help well the response was overwhelming and these women stepped up mostly women um and there were men too a couple of men yeah um and so we we put a schedule together and we said well we're just going to try and wing this then and we did and it was amazing um so we are actually looking at developing more of these neighborhood um 
projects that will be not palliative, um, a group of neighbors who network and who maybe we do some training with, um, nothing too fancy. And um, we're calling it Chicken Soup. Hmm. And we'll see how that goes. Now, is this like a neighborhood initiative? Is this yeah. to to yeah. bring people exactly. together who live exactly. within walking distance of one exactly. another? So walking or short drives to identify people in need in a neighborhood, and to identify people that would like to volunteer to support those people in need, whether it's with bringing soup or um, whatever, whatever just like the people might use need. To. watering the garden, you know, just regular na- neighborly stuff. Which is very, very easy to do when you're in close proximity to somebody. Right, well, right. Well, and you go ahead, you, Kevin. No, no, I was going to say. So you talked about the 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 retail expansion, uh, so to speak. Right. Are people or organizations approaching you to say, "I really love this model. I love this. You're building this community here. I love this." Can you help me replicate it where I live? That's what we're getting. They're, we're getting, we want you to come and and make a store like this for our program. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I see this model as as the future, as the now, like the here and now, and this is the future. I mean, I really do think that, you know, we talk about, you know, the politics of healthcare. Um, and everybody being covered. You got Medicare, the Medicaid. Um, I, I mean, it is heavily politically driven, and I didn't want. I don't necessarily want to get into that per se, but I do feel that this is the solution. It's Again, fiscally, it, it's fiscally responsible. It is, and it it's, is. It's well, and as long as there the, are people the who are not care, yeah. who are not receiving good care, we've got a real problem on our hands. Right. I, I mean, without these supports, I mean, people are coming into the clinical setting just a wreck. Yeah, I know. They can't and, even get a ride. Yeah, I mean, right, right. And if we can't maintain any type of health and wellness on any level, and they come in and just literally a wreck, yeah. um, not only, I mean, we're doing the system a disservice, but more importantly, we're doing them a disservice. Yeah. Because they just lost so much of ability to to live, you know, in certain situations, any type of quality of life, then they're basically just stuck yeah. in that clinical setting where they and really exactly. don't want to be. And you you know you have your within the walls model at the hospital and in the cancer treatment clinics, but for it to truly work, you must have that continuum of care. That that goals of care must filter out into the community and mm-hmm. be maintained there. Or it's a useless mm-hmm. plan of care. Right. Basically, well, I feel. I mean, I don't know whether well, that's a bit radical it, or what. It's just out of all the fluff and, and some of the BS or whatever you want to call it that you've you've heard about, you know, the healthcare system, this is the smartest thing I've heard in a very long time. You know, just this and again, I know I'm I'm out here with you. I'm in Colorado doing these types of services, but I just I love knowing that you're out there. Mm-hmm. This is the way. 
you know, if anybody hears mm-hmm. me, hears you tonight, hears Keith, you know, uh, it's just this is what we have to do. Yeah, this and what I, what I'd like to know is, is there any similar sort of um, programs going on in bigger cities? Because I feel like Santa Fe is an ideal size city to do this. There's already resources set up. You know, there's food delivery for the sick, and there's all kinds of things that we connect people with. I don't know how this would be done on a bigger scale, or if it is being done, or it may not be a model. I, for a bigger scale. Yeah, I well, don't know. I think it I think what it does is it becomes a little more decentralized when you're on a larger scale. Um right. you, it's sort of a divide and conquer and so you set up uh sort of areas in in a larger city to do mm-hmm. that, but I yeah. I do think that I don't know. I'm I'm just my mind is racing right now. I mean, there the model has I mean, it it should be able to be successful. On a larger scale, I know. I mean, I'm I'm doing phone support with one of my clients that's gone to Ohio for the summer to stay with her daughter mm-hmm. for two months, and she's calling I had me a from client Ohio. That, I had a client that I worked with only over the phone, dealing mm-hmm. with his his wife's dying process and getting sure. her through that. It's very easy sure. to do over the phone, mm-hmm. right? Well, and it it sounds like that there are. There are other services that you all could offer over time that could prove to be helpful to many people in different scenarios, but also helpful to you in terms of your your revenue stream. Um, there's so many skills that you can bring to bear here, and so many ideas. I can tell that Kevin's mind is just racing, <laughs> and he wants to sit down and write a business plan. And I want to hear all those ideas. I know. See, that Keith Kevin's is um, having. We have we have FaceTime open, which is a, a webcam on our other computers, and he's looking at me like I'm literally I'm like can, gripping myself. I'm like I want to jump <laughs> out of my chair and start this movement. Mm. So, right. and the thing is, well, Kevin, also the, the piece we haven't talked about is the World Health Organization when they described palliative care in 2007 said that a real key piece to it is the complementary medicine. That it's right. very much that's a very important piece, you know for patients undergoing cancer treatment, whatever. And that's a, an area of expertise of Janet's. Oh, the, right. the complementary. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. As, the, as if she doesn't do enough. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, so, Janet, you don't do enough. I'm I'm sorry. It's just it's not <laughs> enough yet. <laughs> Give me more. So that's though. all our ideas. That's all we have. Yeah. <laughs> I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. I am too. (laughs) Kevin's wiping his brow. I know. It was great fun. It really was. To talk to to like-minded people, it's so rare. You know, I would say that this evening for me, it was like, you know, and for Keith and I, I, we love this show. And we love being... Oh, and you can tell either a voice for nurses or the platform so that the nurses can put their voices out there. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you, we sometimes we don't know what we're going to get into, uh, but it is a true pleasure to have incredible people like yourselves on the show. And it's like, I, I'm a, you know, and I can only speak for, you know, being a kid on Christmas morning, like just ripping through the gifts <laughs> because I mean, this is just amazing. Um, each, mm. each, level it just it just kept getting better and better and what your services uh what you're offering to people it's just in mm. the model that you have is well just i think it's so exciting because it's a real simple model this 
It's really well, simple, and I think you can, you know. Well, that's the piece where, you know, like I said, I don't want to get in this political debate, but where, you know, government is trying to make it so complex when it really doesn't have to be. You know, yeah. we can bring it back to the simple medicine. Sure, we can integrate technology in there to make it easier mm-hmm. on so many levels, mm-hmm. but we really don't need all the extra fluff. Leave it alone. Stop it. Mm. Let us do this stuff. Mm-hmm. We're doing a great job as it is. Watch what we're doing. And, you know, I've and saved, save money. <laughs> I've saved mm-hmm. the state of Colorado lots and lots of money <laughs> because my clients mostly are Medicare, Medicaid folks. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't ask them to thank me. If you want to call me, though, please, I'll give you my number. And if the state of Colorado does want to actually call me, that's fine. Anyway, I digress. But still, I just, you know, I do it for the patient and the state benefits because of the supports that I'm providing and that you're providing as well. Um, And it's just so simple. It's like simple math. You're just like, my gosh, can we just sit down here and I'll give it to you in like 10 minutes or less and we'll be done and you'll have the solution. Instead of months right. and months and months and years and years and years of all this bickering and fighting about how we should, you know, run the system here. Hmm. Right. Anyway, sorry. I think and I'm sweating. Yeah, on, I'm on this right. like soapbox here. Well, I got you fired up. <laughs> I know. I, I'm literally sweating right now. Right. And and Janet and Marcy, what what we wish for you, uh, Kevin and I both, what we wish for you is that that this model can really come to fruition here in Santa Fe that people here in our community first can learn about what it is that your volunteer army can grow, that the healthcare providers in Santa Fe will get on board and realize what a gift that it, this is, and that you can replicate what you need to replicate in order to make this financially sustainable for you and maybe bring bring these retail stores to other locations and maybe replicate this model for others and really coach them coach them through how to do this and how to make this sort of service happen in maybe bigger communities, smaller communities. You know, we live in a city, you know, we call this a city, it's 75,000 people, and you all are doing an incredible job of of making this jumpstart here in Santa Fe, and I'm I'm so proud to live here and to say that you're my neighbors and and friends here in town. Um, What... What I would like to put out right now to you, I haven't asked Kevin about this, but I'm sure he'd say yes, is that perhaps we could have you back on the show in, say, I don't know, five months, four months, maybe January. And, you know, then we can promote your website, talk about how things have gone, and really help get the word out and see how things have developed and changed over time. Absolutely. We would love to do that. Because we're always looking for a marker, and and we need to interface, you know, and interact with people who know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And you guys Mm -hmm. certainly fit that bill. Well, thank you. And um, it's been, we've actually been talking for almost 90 minutes. Kevin, we did it again. We didn't even take a break. I know, I know. See, this is the good stuff, ladies. This is really the good stuff. When this is you know, a good show. We, we forget that we're we're supposed to take a break, or if anybody's got to go to the bathroom, forget <laughs> it. I'm holding it. I'm thirsty, but I'm good because yeah. I'm just I'm I'm soaking it all in. And you know, going back to the um, you know what Keith was saying, we'd love to have you back. I would love to certainly talk more. Um, you know about what a sustainable business model could be for for future uh, mm-hmm. services out there for people because you know I would say I should I shouldn't 
word it this way to say, unfortunately, we have to talk business. But, you know, we do because if yeah. we don't, how can you stay in existence? How can you sustain your mo- you know, the business, That's the services? Yeah. We would um, love to talk more with you. Yeah, it's mm. just um, I love I love what you're doing. You already know that. And um, mm-hmm. I would love to help you with whatever you need to do to take that model and pay it forward. Give it to, you know, help mm-hmm. someone else out so that they can continue so that there is continuity of care across the whole country, across the, the world, that we this can be done. This can well, happen. Well, you know, it's re- interesting you say that because this whole thing has been about pay it forward. I, I think for, for many of us of a certain age and a certain place in life, it's time to, to start offsetting some of the footprints and and really, you know, get down and and get our best work out there. Mm. I think that's incredibly important. Mm. Right. Well said. Thank you. Right. Well said. Mm. Yeah. And thank you. Well, Janet and Marcy, thank you so much. Um, we're going to say goodnight, and then Kevin and I are going to chat for a few minutes just to close out the show. Um, but Kevin, maybe we can get we can get you to drive down to uh, Santa Fe yeah. sometime in the next few months, and the four of us can have dinner. How's that? Well, that would be I know. so great. The thing is, is that I should I should have already been down in Santa Fe, or I should be just because of Keith. But now I just have more reasons, more and more. That's right. I mean, it's just growing, so I do need to. I, I love Santa. I haven't been down in Santa Fe in such a uh, quite a while now. But I'm about five hours from you, five six hours. So you are. You're in Boulder. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So I think, hours, gosh, yeah. we drove down there in about six hours. I think yeah. it was five and a half, something like that. So, well, come on down, Kev. So yeah. Well, yeah. anyway, uh, Marcy and and Janet, thank you so much, and we'll be talking soon. And we're going to say good night, and just have a lovely night, and and we'll be in touch. It was a good pleasure. Night. Thank you so much. Thank you. Nightly. Bye. Good night. Good night. Wow. Wow, Kevin, we uh, we did it again. Ninety minutes of uh, straight talking. <laughs> I know, like literally, I'm sweating. It was like I just I get so passionate about these things sometimes. Like my temperature goes up a couple of degrees, and hey, you know. Well, that's anyway. great. That's great. You know, I just I had this in- intuitive hit. I remember you and I talked about Marcy and uh, Janet maybe a month or two ago when I first had coffee with Janet. Someone gave me her email address, and I sent her an email. We met for coffee, and I thought, oh, my God, this model is amazing, mm-hmm. and we just we have to bring them on the show. Now, I can't wait to have them back when they have a website up, when they have the more robust Facebook page, and we can right. really push, push it a little further and really help get the word out about it. Well, it's interesting because um, I was in a meeting before the show, and uh, – a few people were asking me about the show this evening, and I said, you know, I can't really articulate, you know, about the guests so much. I mean, I, I just, you know, Keith said that, you know, I would really enjoy these ladies and, you know, just the, the idea, the, you know, the, the business model, I mean, what they provide. and But I, I just, mm-hmm. I really couldn't say, like, what it was, per se, you know. Right. And, um now I'm going to go back and say it. I mean, it was an incredible show. I mean, I hope you caught it. And like I said, you can catch it on the archives. But this, you know, you're right, Keith. I it's really resonated with me this evening. And I just, 
it's one of those things where you do. You look at somebody and you say, I just want you to, you, you just, you have to understand this. You just have to know. I don't know why you don't get it. And I know it's, you know, big government and a lot of bureaucracy that we have to cut through uh, at times to basically say, like, listen, let's bring this back. Let's make this as simple as possible. And this is this is really the solution. Um, and I yeah. know, I mean, yeah, you know, we're talking here on RN, you know, FM radio and, you know, uh, Janet and, and Marcy are are doing their thing and there are other organizations out there doing their thing. But it's like I just I want this to grow. I want the voice to be larger. I want it to be louder. I want it to be very clear that this is the answer. Right. And, you know, that's why we started doing what we're doing here on the radio show. And I feel like this is this is our little mouthpiece, and it's part of how we can promote the businesses, the models, the care models, the, the entrepreneurs, the people who are out there who are doing something that we think is really worthwhile. And right. we've had some really interesting guests. We've had all sorts of people on. And when someone comes along with something that is new, and something that can really solve an issue and bring to bear some skills that can really alter the landscape. I think that's when we get really excited. And yeah. not that any of our other guests haven't been exciting, but this is a really exciting model, and I'm glad that you kind of caught the fever of it. <laughs> having talked oh, definitely. Yeah, literally, literally and figuratively, um, for sure. And it's, you know, here we are towards the, you know, at the end of the show. And I would want to tell you at the beginning of the show, if I had known then what I know now, it's like don't hit the stop button. Don't pause it. You have to hear what right. is being communicated because it's it just makes sense. Yeah, and it really does. It really does. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, that being said, um, this is what I think, you know, Keith and I together – I hope can can help you as budding entrepreneurs out there wanting to potentially do something like this very similar um to get your message out there to to help you communicate to your community like here I am I'm providing these services and you know this what this is what moves me like again I'm a, I love being a clinician I like being a nurse but I also love helping people you know take these models and build it for themselves and for their community uh, to provide the services. Just, there's enough to go around, plenty to go around. So, anyway. Exactly. Yeah, I, I love hearing that passion in your voice, and I know that you're passionate about that. And for nurses out there who feel like they need that support, that they need some coaching, they need some cajoling, they need some whatever it is that they need to help move them along, they can contact us at rnfmradio.com. They can contact me at nursekeep.com. They can find you at innovativenurse.com. And we really want to offer our services to those who, who need it. You know, there may be other Janets and Marcy's out there who mm -hmm. have this sort of idea, but they just need that little push. They need a little bit of cajoling or coaching to get them over that hump. You know, this is a hard, it's a hard world out there. The healthcare world is hard to break into and it's hard to do something innovative. So right. if we can help one person get over that little bump and make it out there into the world with their idea, I'd be so happy. And, well, and Kevin, yeah. 
No, no, I was just going to say that, you know, as overwhelming and as lengthy or overwhelming or as incredible as their story, that could be your story too. Right. It it really can be. It's attainable. Yeah. And Kevin, I had a different story to mention that uh, I know we have to wrap up soon. I didn't even ask you about this, but today is actually the one-year anniversary of uh, my mom's stroke. My mom had a massive stroke a year ago today. And um, she died a year ago tomorrow. And really, because of what Janet and Marcy brought to the show, I'd really like to dedicate the show to my mom. Um, you know, she she was very healthy. She was really well. She had a lot of chronic illnesses going on, but she was a concert pianist, and she actually had her stroke at the piano during a concert, and her left hand stopped working. My sister noticed this. And my mom kept playing with her right hand, even as she was, you know, she was really stroking big time. And wow. she was bra- she was brain dead, you know, an hour later. And this was down in Atlanta. And I just really want to dedicate this to my mom because there's a lot of people out there who, unlike my mom, they have a stroke, but then they need a lot of care after right. that devastating event. My mom died, you know, within 24 hours, and I think it was a blessing. But there's a lot of people out there who need the palliative care and the hospice care once they have a chronic illness. And, you know, you and I both had members of our families who needed really important, crucial care. And I just wanted to mention that and and dedicate this to her. Uh, Keith, what's your mom's name? Her name is Barbara. Barbara DeAngelis. Barbara. All right. We're dedicating it to Barbara. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, next week we're going to be here with uh, Lisa Summers and Janet Besner, the Coalition for Patients' Rights. So Mm -hmm. we'll be talking about actually some very similar information. This is really about patients' rights, about safety, about what patients are entitled to and how patients can really get what they need out of the healthcare system. So I think it's a perfect segue from this show into the next show. I think I'll probably get fired up on that one, too. I think you probably will. So we'll do some homework for that one. And on the 25th, we have Stacey Turner and Linda Leakley of Embracing Civility and EmbracingCivility.com. And that's really about what they feel is the true healthcare reform, which is bringing civility back to the healthcare workplace so that nurses, doctors, and other healthcare professionals treat each other with kindness and compassion, just as they treat their patients, and that that could really transform healthcare as well. Mm-hmm. So the, these three shows, I think it's it's really an incredible um, few weeks of shows that we have here, and I can't wait for our next guest next week. Oh yes, I I agree, I agree. Right um, now, Kevin, before we go, you have something important happening tomorrow. Can you tell us about it? I do, um, and it's great kind of coming off of this wonderful show tonight with with you and, of course, Janet and Marcy this evening. Um, you know, last week I mentioned it, and, of course, if you follow me on Facebook and Innovative Nurse, uh, the various uh, platforms, I'm going to be on a teleseminar, uh, somewhat, I guess, being interviewed by Lori Minky Radcliffe. She was actually on our show a couple of months back. Uh, she is the fitness nurse. She's an advocate for fitness nursing and an entrepreneur. And what we're going to discuss tomorrow on June 7th, or June 7th, June 12th, I'm sorry, 7 p.m. 
uh, Eastern Standard Time, we are going to be talking about some of the mistakes that new entrepreneurs make, uh, basically as they're trying to connect with their clients and build their businesses. And so I don't actually have the link to the teleseminar, but what you can do is go to InnovativeNurse.com, and then it's under the post, uh, Does Your Business Need a Band-Aid? And so mm-hmm. I'm going to talk uh, you know, to the audience of up-and-coming entrepreneurs, or even if you're an experienced entrepreneur, I will share with you what I think some of the, the larger mistakes are, I think, and maybe a couple of the minor ones that hopefully you haven't gone through or you can avoid, and maybe you have gone through it, but I will share some of my personal experiences with you um, because, yes, I have left enough skin in the game to, as I say in the post, clone myself and make another me, um, and hopefully I can help you not have to put as much skin in the game uh, when it comes to starting your own business. So, right. yeah, great, thank you for Kevin. reminding me about that. Sure. Will that show be archived? Because I might not be it, able to listen in myself tomorrow. Lori should be archiving that. Um, like I said, there's a link on Innovative Nurse, and I believe that link should still uh, be a viable link for you to go to for an archived uh, episode. And I believe Lori did say – we talked – she and I talked for three hours uh, the other day just just chatting. And um, I believe she did say that she was going to archive that and, and make that. And maybe there's actually even a way I can download that as well and, and post it on That's Innovative great. Nurse. So Okay, great. Yeah. So you heard it here, folks. Uh, InnovativeNurse.com. Check that tomorrow for the link or any day after. And visit me at nursekeith.com. Our blog, uh, rnfmradio.com, is coming along. We have to add a little more content there. Uh, We promise to do that over the next few months. Yeah, Uh, I apologize. (laughs) I apologize. I apologize to you, Keith. I apologize to the listeners. Trust me, we want it out there. The radio show is live and kicking and just we'll keep that going, and then hopefully the, the site will grow. That's right. It will, no doubt. So, Kevin, thanks so much. This has been a great show. Uh, Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for tuning in. Thanks for anyone who's listening to the archive show or the podcast. This is RNFM Radio. Uh, This is Keith Carlson signing off, and I'll say goodnight. And how about you, Kevin? Yep, I just wanted to say thank you, Keith. And again, Janet and Marcy, it's been a wonderful show. I just, I love doing it, and I want to keep doing it. This is just, you know, it's a great way to start the week. So I love Monday evenings. So thank you so much for listening, everyone. Uh, We really do appreciate you. You you don't know how much we appreciate you, but we do. Mm. So, all right. Good night, everyone. Good night.